Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We begin podcast 20 in our series on American history. In podcast 19, still discussing the ongoing Constitutional Convention, we looked at who the chief diplomats were. We compared and contrasted the Virginia versus the New Jersey plans. We looked at the Great Compromise and perhaps the most bitter pill up to that point in the convention was, what are they going to do for a chief executive, aka a president of the United States? And then we highlighted, or I foreshadowed, the other culminating issue that was threatening to blow apart the Constitutional Convention, and that was, of course, the issue of slavery. We did discuss and ended the podcast with the idea that Congress was barred from banning slavery anywhere in the territorial United States for at least 20 years from the summer of 1787. Of course, that would bring them to 1807, and that runaway slaves had to be returned. I left the podcast at that point because that was, you know, it's a good demarcation point in the sense that the major, major issues were discussed there that you're discussing the podcast that were threatening to break up the convention as it progressed throughout that famous summer of 1787. But I want to begin this podcast before we flesh out just what really does the Constitution do for us Americans. I want to begin this one podcast by asking you, the listeners, did the founding fathers drop the ball on ending slavery? Did they have an opportunity and simply kicked it off to a future generation to be able to figure out? One of the things that I foreshadowed in the last podcast. Well, let me take it from uh, Joseph Ellis, prominent American historian, where in his book called Founding Brothers, on pages 106 to 107, he gives a lot of food for consideration here on whether we should blame the Founding Fathers for not ending the institution of slavery, whether we should or shouldn't. Please keep his research here in mind, and I'm going to read uh, from him a quote or verbatim here, so bear with me. All of the plans for gradual emancipation assumed that slavery was a moral and economic problem that demanded a political solution. Everyone that was advocating gradual emancipation also needed to remember two additional extremely important points. First, that any family that owned slaves would need to be compensated. But from where? The funds perhaps coming from some combination of a national tax and from revenues generated through the sale of Western lands. Second, that the bulk of the freed slaves would have to be transported elsewhere. Where? Back to Africa? 
to the islands, to Central or South America, nobody knew. And who would foot the bill for that? As we have seen, Dr. Ellis moves on or points out, the projected cost of compensation was a potent argument to end the idea of gradual emancipation, and that the argument had been echoed in most scholarly treatments of the topic ever since. Estimates vary according to the anticipated price for each freed slave, which ranged in those days from between $100 and $200. The higher figure produced a total cost of about $140 million to emancipate the entire slave population in the late 1780s. Please keep in mind that the federal budget that year was less than $7 million. $7 million federal budget and a $140 million economic and moral problem facing the founding fathers. The critics seemed to be right when they concluded that the costs were not just daunting, but also prohibitively expensive. The more one thought about such numbers, in effect, the more one realized that further thinking and discussing it was simply futile. Please also keep in mind one other point that Dr. Ellis emphasizes on the next page. Again, whether you want to blame the Founding Fathers or not for dropping the ball on slavery. As I stated from my very first first podcast, I rarely will give my direct opinion. Rather, I'm going to give you the evidence to be able to take one side or the other. Coupled with what you already know about the issue, you can then draw your own conclusion, whether you dig in heels for your original conviction or perhaps you change your mind. Keep in mind, though, as Dr. Ellis points out here, two unpalatable but undeniable historical facts were facing the founding fathers in that hot summer of 1787. First, that no emancipation plan without the feature of compensation, stood the slightest chance of success. And second, for those of you that argue, hey, free the slaves and just keep them within the newly founded United States, please keep in mind Joseph Ellis's second point. No model of a genuinely biracial society existed anywhere in the known world at that time, nor had any existed in recorded history. That's a lot to take in. I get that. The part of the reason why, before I begin my class discussions and lectures on American history, I constantly have to bring out Joseph Ellis's book and reread that to make sure that I have those facts literally hammered in my head. It's a lot to take in, a $7 million federal budget, but compared to the cost of emancipation, $140 million. Yes, and I know what some of you listeners might genuinely be thinking. How can you put the cost of human lives with dollar amounts? But as Joseph Ellis had pointed out, you weren't going to free the slave population unless the Southerners and even many Northern slave owners in the the 1780s, were going to be uh, compensated. So for that reason, the Congress there at the time simply did sweep the rug, under rug for a future generation to have to deal with. And that's the reason why they barred, where Congress was barred from banning slavery 
for at least one generation, 20 years, and that runaway slaves had to be returned. Finally, as the convention was nearing its expiration date, which was agreed upon before it even began on May 25th, 1787, that at noon on September 17th, 1787, if they did not come out and end the Summers Convention with a much stronger Articles of Confederation or a new form of government, that the current articles would remain in effect, the Confederation Congress would still be the ruling body in the United States if nothing came to fruition by noon on September 17, 1787. Mind you, as we talked about, well over 50 men were invited to the meeting and started out on May 25th. But by September 17th, only 42 remained. And by nine in the morning, nobody was stepping forward to sign the Constitution. By signing it, it didn't put it into effect. It just meant that I agree for this document to now be floated to the 13 states for either ratification or to be voted down. Yet by 9 a.m., nobody was stepping forward. 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, 11 o'clock. The murmurs in the room, who is going to pick up the quill and sign that parchment? By 11 o'clock, the murmuring was dying as everybody was looking at the sun as to where it was, watching the large clock indicating what time it was. Finally, as a result of this, Benjamin Franklin, in perhaps his finest hour, motioned to General Washington to be able to take the floor of which, of course, he, George Washington, agreed to. Mind you, prior to this, he had asked, he, George Washington, had asked, are there any other points that need to be discussed? That is the only recorded set of words that George Washington uttered that James Madison recorded in that entire summer. George Washington, yes, a man of beyond humble attributes, continued to watch James Madison take the notes on who was saying what at what time and what the issue and topic was. And by the middle of September, it was dawning on General Washington that, you know what, if Madison does not record me as saying anything, nobody's really going to know I was even here other than through the attendance that was taken. And that is part of the motivation for George Washington to have asked that question. Never said a word before, didn't say anything after, but just, hey, anybody else have any other uh, topics here you want to kick around, right? So that's all we have from General Washington. So it is for that uh, intro or lead-in that Benjamin Franklin realizing that they're going to depart with nothing to show for the last four months of effort of work that they did, took to the floor. Now, mind you, partly due to age and size, he needed some assistance to get up to his feet and turn around and address the uh, dwindling crowd of men. And please listen, I'm not reading from anything, but because I, I, I want I, the summary in some cases is, is more powerful to drive home the point. Benjamin Franklin knows that at this point, nobody's signing this document, not one person. They would have done so if they were going to. They're just biding their time until noon comes, either hit the city tavern for one last lunch or just hit the road and get back to their individual uh, states to get back to their homes for the fall harvest. Franklin realizes 
this, this time is ticking here. So he turns to all of the men who then quietly or quiet down, sit back in their chairs and look at Benjamin Franklin. And one might think, because occasionally I put this, depending upon the size and how talkative my classes, I'll put it to them. What do you think what Franklin would want to say to the men? Oh, come on, we've worked so hard, sign this thing. What are you waiting for, right? That's usually the answers I get, and that's, a, that's understandable. But Franklin doesn't start out that way. He congratulates them. Gentlemen, you did it. Congratulations. You have put together, in a matter of four months' time, four pieces of parchment outlining a government with so much promise. We all should be so proud of ourselves. Listeners, what's Franklin doing there? Think about that. Rewind the podcast if you need to, or hit back a couple of seconds. Listen to those words. Congratulations. Great job. He's stroking their ego. He's building them up, buttering them up, call if that's what you want, right? He is absolutely feeding their ego. He is making them feel good that they created something practically out of nothing. They went back and reviewed the essays and the treatises by John Locke, Thomas Hobbes. They looked back at ancient Greek uh, democracy and the writings of Cleisthenes and Herodotus. They did it all. Good for all of us. But then came the reality check. And that's when Franklin took it upon himself to take his own quill and look at that document and said, but don't any of you think for a moment that I agree with everything that's written there. I most certainly do not. I am fearful about some of the points that were incorporated and you heard me fight against it. And I wasn't alone with some of these issues, but it's in there anyhow. Why? Because a majority of you thought it should be. There are many things that I wanted in there and are in there. And many things I wanted in there that are not. Why? Because the majority of you thought it shouldn't be included. Not one of you has every one of your ideas in here. Not one of you has mentioned an at least one idea that isn't in there. We all have things we like about it. In other words, we all have things that we don't. But gentlemen, we compromised. Are you really willing to turn around and walk out of here in less than an hour and have these four pieces of parchment basically go to nothing. We did this for nothing. Gentlemen, I implore you. I beg you. I plead with you. Sign this instrument. And he said it with such emphasis and such bravado that he lost his balance, later claimed to feel dizzy, and essentially fell into the chair. There were very few dry eyes after Franklin was finished speaking. And one by one, the gentlemen lined up to pick up the quill, to dip it into the inkwell, and sign the Constitution of the United States. Now, if it may seem as though that I'm putting 
Franklin on a higher pedestal than he already deserves to be, that he persuaded everybody. He did not. Even of the 42 men, three did not sign it. Three wanted nothing to do with it still, which is the reason why we only have 39 of the 42 signatures. So from there, the Constitution, again, it mythically believed, boom, becomes automatically law of the land. It doesn't. The Constitution, therefore, went to the individual states to be copied and for the individual states to discuss, the states' legislatures, the Senate, etc., to be able to discuss. They would need nine out of the 13 states to ratify. So while the Constitution is being kicked around the states to figure out whether we're going to go with this or not, hint, hint, we're going to. I don't mean to give away the end of the story here. But while that document is floating around, being uh, kicked around the uh, individual states, Let's just look at what this Constitution is and in the negatively surprising to some of my students what it isn't. First off, the Constitution becomes the supreme law of the land. That is one point right there that some of the men left or refused to sign the Constitution. The Constitution as a document never says who's ultimately in charge. And I've had students stop me right here, which I bless their hearts for doing so, because that means they're so into it and they're really getting caught up in the moment, which is awesome. But they say, no, Professor, they can't be right. Our president is. And I just leave it there. Right or wrong, everybody? Is the president ultimately in charge? Raise your hand if you agree. Sometimes many hands go up. Yeah? Then why have we had impeached presidents? Why has a president resigned in our history? because afraid of what the legal consequences were going to become because of his actions. No, the president is not ultimately in charge. He doesn't get to take the oath of office or eventually she, unless we say so. And a majority of us have to say so. So sorry, the president is not ultimately in charge. And to prove this, which is the way that some students really find surprising, I say to them standing in the classroom, if Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, Trump were to walk in the door, what do we have to do? Oh, stand. Do we have to stand? No. No, we don't. We don't even have to acknowledge him. President Donald Trump could come in. We could say, hey, Don, what's going on? Sir, of course we wouldn't want to, whether you agree or disagree with the politics. Of course we shouldn't do it. But there's no legal ramifications. If we do not address the president of the United States, we can totally ignore him. That's not the way it was. And a majority of established countries around the world in the late 1700s, they all had that massive monarchy uh, family of which everybody had to rise or risk being thrown in jail. Uh-uh. You do not have to rise for our president. You do not have to stand up for any of our members of the Congress. You do not even have to stand up for... And I leave it there and I say, wait a minute. There is somebody you have to stand up for in our American political system. Who is it? And the minds immediately race. They say, yeah, 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 you're right. We have to stand up for a judge or Supreme Court justices. Yes or no? Yeah, yeah, you have to stand up because they say if you don't, you'll be held in contempt. Right. So if all of us run across the street to a restaurant for lunch, 
and all nine justices of the Supreme Court parade in after us, we have to stand? Well, I never thought of that. No, we don't. Some students will say, exactly. The only time you have to stand for any member of our government, if you're not military, if you're a civilian, the only member that you have to stand up for is a judge or a justice in the courtroom only. I'm stressing that because in actuality, ladies and gentlemen, you're not standing up for the judge or the justice. You're not standing up for that human being. You're standing up for the document that that legal scholar is protecting and defending and standing as representative of. That's why we stand for the judge or justice that walks into the courtroom. It's not them, as well as it may go to some of their egos sometimes after doing that for years. No, we are standing up for what that institution reflects, the Constitution of the United States. And that's the way our founding fathers wanted it. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot stress to you enough how much we became the laughing stock of the monarchy families of Europe when they read our document and found out that there was not any one person in charge, that even that chief executive that we call a president can technically be removed by Congress? That just made no, you'll never get anything done. That's a recipe for failure, so many of those families said. And yet, that's the supreme law of the land. Parchment, technically a document is the supreme law of the land. And why is this? Think about that for a moment. Why would the founding fathers said no human being, even elected, no human being can be the ultimate law of the land? The reason being is because parchment became the king. Why parchment? Because it's an innocuous, it's an object. Parchment doesn't have prejudice. Parchment doesn't have bad days. Parchment doesn't look at your skin color and draw a conclusion before you even open your mouth. Parchment doesn't care how you make the sign of the cross or if you face Easter pray or you do neither because you don't believe. Parchment doesn't care. And that's the reason why it's the supreme law of the land. Within that document, yes, there is a system of checks and balances where each branch has a check, quote unquote, into the powers and obligations of the other branch. A quick, simple point of this is just look at our own Supreme Court of the United States. Think about it. When a justice steps down into retirement or unfortunately dies on the bench, think about that. Those eight justices know that that seat needs to be filled soon. Think about it, not one of those justices has any say in who is going to fill that seat. They have no role as our founding fathers directed them. They shall remain silent and they shall be powerless when it comes to literally picking their own colleague that they will be spending potentially several years, if not decades, with, and they had no say. Notice the president of the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's that supreme law of the person of the, the supreme person in the United States government. Some of you stalwarts don't want to dig in your heels and think the president is all powerful. No, 
All he can do is name somebody. That's all he can do. I nominate. The Constitution says the president shall do and can do no more than that. Then it goes to the Senate, where the majority of the senators have to approve that president's nomination. That is just one of the many classic examples of this such unbelievably important checks and balances. Going to war. Going to war. And our countries, literally in our countries, 242 years on this planet, we have not been involved in a war for 20 of those years. And yet look again at that. And what do you see? Even the president cannot declare war. He has to go to Congress and ask for the war to begin. Why does he ask Congress? Because they control the purse. The president can't keep a war going directly out of his funds. He doesn't have it. The money's not there. Congress funds the war. So he has to ask them for that declaration of war. Now, what about ending the war? Then what does that Congress do? Nothing. Their role's done at that point in terms of declaring war. The president resolves it, but all he does is give input. The Senate ultimately has to approve the war treaty. And if you don't think that that Senate is powerful enough to do so, ask Woodrow Wilson what he thought when he wanted to join that League of Nations after World War I and sign the Treaty of Versailles. But Senate said, no, we will not get involved with the resolution of a European war. So that is just two of the many examples of, again, I would just want to stress here about the importance of what we call our checks and balances. From there, students mythically believe that it's in the rest of the documents, the rest of the articles of the Constitution of the United States that technically protects our rights. It does not. Nowhere in the major articles of the Constitution of the United States does it state what the government can and cannot do to us Americans. And oftentimes that's surprising to the students. I swear that that was my constitutional right. It will be that way. But it wasn't as proposed in the summer of 1787. That will not become the case until, number one, the Constitution is officially adopted. Then, two years later, on December 15, 1791, the United States Congress will approve our first 10 modifications to that document, aka amendments, which will then list and what retrospectively becomes known as our Bill of Rights that we say, I am constitutionally protected. But of the individual articles of the Constitution, the article that describes the Supreme Court, the article that explains the presidency, etc., none of those spell out any rights for us. It is, however, in the explanation of the Bill of Rights that I often find students leaving the class angry, confused. Some of them coming up to me saying, Professor, I want to believe you, but I've got to fact check you on this. And I say, please do so. To the point that I've now modified the class discussion to actually bring up the real Supreme Court cases that actually discuss 
what some of the applications of those rights are. And they understand, although they do not agree, but they understand why in our political system, sometimes criminals do walk away as free people because, again, of the application of what we call those Bill of Rights. And that's what we'll begin with in the next podcast is discussing, again, that why the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and what those Bill of Rights technically do and don't do for us. And I do caution you, it's not an easy podcast to listen to. But I will give you the actual Supreme Court rulings. It's not going to last real long. I'm not going to belabor this into several half-hour-long podcasts that'll take us into the next five or the next year. Not at all. Just I get, I get the ball rolling with some of the reasons why criminals have walked free. Why, in some cases, our government does allow us to do some things that you and I might grossly, truly, grossly disagree with. But yet, if you had the power within you, would you overturn that right? It's a very, very uneasy, unsettling discussion that we'll have with that next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today or have any questions, please don't hesitate to uh, message me through my um, website. Other than that, thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.